Let's open our Bibles to the second chapter of Acts. Acts chapter 2, where we want to continue the study that we began last Lord's Day. This is divine history. That's right. This is not history written by men who interpret it through their own weak and deceitful eyes as they try to present history in their own perspective. This is God's history by the Holy Ghost recorded for us. He hasn't told us much of what happened, but what he's told us is for our profit. Of the 12 apostles that we met in Acts chapter 1, only three are ever mentioned again in the Bible. The other nine went elsewhere, and the Bible doesn't tell us. And I look at that, and I see that men can labor in obscurity, but they're still doing the work of God, and they're still foundation stones of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because those apostles were great men, not great in themselves because they were very weak fishermen that couldn't even speak without anyone knowing that they'd never been to school as soon as they opened their mouths. Not very great in themselves, but great by the power of God. Amen. We met them in the first chapter. And that was that's the, this is the history of the Acts of the Apostles. What did the Apostles do for the Lord Jesus Christ? Luke wrote this book. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke, of everything that Jesus did while he was here on earth. And then Luke wrote to the same man, Theophilus, he's mentioned there in the beginning of chapter 1, of all that the apostles did after Jesus went back to heaven. Now the setting that we come to in Acts chapter 2 is that Jesus went back to heaven in chapter 1, and he left his apostles there and he told them to wait for power. But ye shall be... But ye shall receive power in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. And with that power, you will be my witnesses. And I showed you last Lord's Day that that can apply to us because we're not witnesses. The apostles saw Jesus Christ after he was risen from the dead. They could witness the fact that he is indeed alive. I've seen the holes in his hands. I've seen the hole in his side. I've seen him eat and drink. I've seen him. I've heard him talk. And therefore, they could be witnesses, and they would be so by the power of the Spirit. But I'll tell you something. As we look in Acts chapter 1, and they had their first business meeting where they chose, with God's blessing, a replacement for Judas Iscariot, who had gone out and hung himself, we see that they were only 120. We see that they're rather timid. They're not doing anything great in Acts chapter 1. They're just following the Lord Jesus around, and they have one little business meeting. These were the men that ran when the mob of angry men from the scribes and the Pharisees came and took Jesus captive in the Garden of Gethsemane. Fearful men. And so here they're all gathered together. They're praying, and they're of one mind. We did see that in chapter 1. But there's nothing for us to look at those 120 and think that they're going to turn the world upside down. It looks rather weak. The kingdom of Christ looks rather weak, precarious. Is it going to survive? And if it depended on those 120, it wouldn't have. But so we come to Acts chapter 2. I'll read the first four verses. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. 
And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Lord gave them power. Remember in chapter 1 and verse 5 we read, these are the words of Jesus, John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. And this was 7 to 10 days later when they were baptized with the Holy Ghost. The day of Pentecost had fully come. The day of Pentecost in your Bibles is called the Feast of Weeks. It's called the Feast of Harvest. It occurred 50 days. That's what Pente means. Let's just see if we can figure that out without going to the Greek or the Hebrew. Why do we call the headquarters for our military the Pentagon? It's got five sides. You say, well, that's five. That's not 50. That's because it's Penta. Try Penti, and you'll get 50. Your dictionary has hundreds of words that start with Penta and Penti, meaning 5 or 50. You don't need to go anywhere. That's what it means. And if you go back into Exodus 23, the day of Pentecost occurred 50 days after Passover. It was called the Feast of Weeks because they were to count seven weeks, and then the next day was the single day of the Feast of of Pentecost. It was one of the three great feasts in Israel. Remember, Israel had been told three times a year, I want you to come to Jerusalem and worship me. The Feast of Passover, the Feast of Weeks, which is called Pentecost, not called Pentecost, in the Old Testament called Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Ingathering, all those three, they were to occur in, they were to meet in Jerusalem. And there's a reason for that, why the Holy Ghost waited until the day of Pentecost, because we're going to find that this city is stuffed full of people, Jews, from all over the world. And why were they there? For the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost was important even to Paul. I can show you, look at Acts chapter 20 and verse 16. Acts 20 and verse 16. I read there that Paul had determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend the time in Asia. For he hasted, if it were possible for him, to be at Jerusalem the day of Pentecost. And you can see this in other places in the New Testament. This isn't the only one. That during this period of transition from the Old Testament feasts to New Testament worship like we're engaged in this morning, the Apostle Paul himself would... uh, would try to be there in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. But all the Jews were there that were devout, serious worshipers of God. They would have traveled. It wasn't quite as easy as it is today to travel from Asia to be there at Jerusalem, but they were there. The day of Pentecost had fully come. Now I want you to notice that they were all with one accord in one place. And I am going to harp on this as we go through the book of Acts, because We're studying the book of Acts not just to learn the history, but to apply the things from it for us to be a church like them. We want to have a church like they had at Jerusalem. And what was a prerequisite that we already saw in chapter 1? They were all with one accord in one place. They were unified. There There weren't divisions. 
They weren't upset at each other. They weren't holding different ideas or different doctrines. They all were one mind, one accord, and they were all together. They didn't stay at home thinking they were good saints at home. They were there with the other saints in one place. And that's what we need to be. And I don't want us to rush over the most important verse in chapter 1. What do you think it was? I didn't tell you, or did I last Sunday? I did. It's verse 14 of Acts chapter 1. You say, verse 14, it's not even talking about the resurrection of Jesus. It's not talking about his ascension. And it's not talking about Judas hanging himself and his bowels gushing out. That's right, it's not. What is Acts 1.14? These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. I believe from chapter 1, the most important lesson for us to learn as a church is that if we want the blessings of chapter 2 through 28, we need the condition of chapter 1, and that is to be of one mind and to pray and supplicate God. Great Christians, according to the Bible, are praying Christians. And it not only says prayer, it says supplication. And I explained that to you, that prayer is addressing God, and supplications is how you do it. Begging entreaties. You're begging the Lord. And these men and women, 120 of them, were engaged in prayer. And the reason I go back there is to point out that we want to pull from these chapters words of exhortation to us on how we should be like them. We just don't want a head knowledge of what happened in 28 chapters. You can go home and read it yourself. I want to pull out of this what Jesus Christ has sent me to teach you. That we need to, we need to make sure that our church is unified and that we are given to prayer and supplication. And until we do that, we will not have the victory in our private lives, nor the success as a congregation that the Lord wants to give us. Because you're going to see that He does it to this church. This little band of 120, timid, fearful, you look at them and you say, how are they going to make it? Well, we just found out how in the first four verses, God blessed them with the Holy Ghost. And we need that blessing. I personally want that blessing. And I personally want that blessing for you personally. Every one of you. The power of the Holy Ghost to live a Holy Spirit-filled life and to have the victory over sin consistently from now until the day you die. And then he'll take care of it from there. But he's got to take care of it until we get there too. But I'm telling you what we need to look for and seek for and pray for. Holy Ghost power. You say you sound like a Pentecostal. Are you going to pull up a basket of serpents? No, I don't need them. I just need the Bible. And yes, I am Pentecostal because I just read and when the day of Pentecost was fully come. I'm not talking about their ideas of Pentecost. I'm looking at the true Pentecost. Fifty days after the Passover where Jesus died. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. Listen, brethren, if it had been a real wind, it would have tore the house down. It was the sound as of a rushing mighty wind. And you've been in a rushing mighty wind before, haven't you? You feel the power. You know the power. Just the sound of it is intimidating to know that God is just blowing a little bit. 
You know, we see the, we hear about tornadoes. Some of us wish we could see one a little closer than on the television. To feel it. To hear it. They say it sounds like a train. And I know what a train sounds like. A lot of power. It shakes the ground. Well, the, the Lord sent that. Right. Do you know why all these things excite me? Why I could read Psalm 110 and get excited about talking about a stag drinking from a brook and raising up its head? Because it's masculine. The Bible is masculine from the first chapter to the last chapter. I am tired of the effeminate brand of Christianity that's taught out there in all these churches where there's a bunch of women up participating or leading, and the men are just like women. The entire Bible is masculine. It wasn't a still, small voice. It was the sound as if a rushing mighty wind. You say, but God did speak once by a still, small voice. Yes, he spoke to the man that he had just blessed to chop 950 false prophets into pieces. Next question. Don't, Don't do that. The Bible is masculine. God is he. He is our Father. He's not our Heavenly Mother. He's not our Heavenly Person, as the new versions tell us. And the new songbooks tell us. He is our Heavenly Father, and He sends a masculine sound into that house of a rushing mighty wind. And Jesus had already taught that His Spirit was like the wind. It blows where it wants to, when it wants to, and powerfully. It's invisible. You can't see it. You can't dictate its terms. You don't know where it's coming from and you don't know where it's going. That's the way God works. And brethren, He worked that way in our life, our lives. And He filled the, and it filled the house where they were sitting. And as I told, told you last Sunday, this is indeed a baptism. Because if you're in a house and I fill it with something, you've been buried. This is not a Presbyterian verse for pouring a little bit of something on somebody's head. This is a Baptist text. Because if you're in the house and I fill it with water, you've been buried. But it was filled with the Holy Ghost, and so it was called a baptism of the Holy Ghost. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. A cloven tongue is a split tongue. There was a split tongue of fire on their heads, and it appeared to them. We're not given any other reference about that tongue of fire anywhere else. Brethren, John the Baptist said, I baptize with water. There's there's one coming after me that's mightier than I. He's going to baptize with the Holy Ghost and with fire. A little tongue of fire, cloven tongue of fire on their heads, was not the baptism of fire. If you go back to Matthew chapter 3 and read the words of John the Baptist, you see that the fire there is the fires of judgment going to burn up the chaff. He's saying the axe is now laid to the root of the tree. The tree is going to be chopped down. That's the tree of Israel and thrown into the fire. That's the baptism of fire. And it occurred 40 years after this baptism of the Holy Ghost. There is no baptism of fire in Acts chapter 2. A little tiny cloven tongue of fire on your head, and it wasn't even fire anyway, it looked like fire, is not a baptism of fire. But you'd be amazed how many people think that's the baptism of fire because they missed the destruction of Jerusalem when God poured out fire on that city and burned it up. The Pharisees knew he was going to do that because when he gave them the parable of the householder, he said to them, "What's, what's the Lord of that... How of that vineyard going to do? And they said he's going to miserably destroy those men and burn up their city. 
That's a baptism of fire. But let's go on. There appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire. Do you remember your English? It wasn't fire. It was like as of fire. And it sat upon each of them. When Jesus Christ was anointed with the Holy Ghost, did a dove come down or was there a form of the Holy Ghost like a dove that came down? It's the form of the Holy Ghost like a dove came down on him. There was a visible presence that John the Baptist could see and know this is the Son of God. And then God declared it of heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But there's this tongue of fire on their heads, and it represents the tongue that they're going to, that they're going to be speaking in the very next verse, and it represents the flame of fire that the Holy Ghost is constantly pictured as throughout the Bible. The candlestick before the Lord, the seven flames of the seven spirits of God in the earth, as we read in the book of Revelation. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, there's different levels of being filled with the Holy Ghost. Those apostles were regenerated when, before Jesus called them. So they had the Holy Ghost in, in a way, in a, in a way, in that they had a new man that was in them motivated by the Spirit of God. In John chapter 20, we read that Jesus breathed on them and said, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. And then several days later, they're getting filled. Now they were given some knowledge in John chapter 20 so that they could understand a few things. Because when we get to chapter 1 of Acts, Peter was pretty knowledgeable. He was able to pull some prophecies out of the Psalms about Judas Iscariot. That wasn't the Peter we knew back in the Gospels. He couldn't even figure out that Jesus was supposed to die and rise from the dead. But now they're getting filled. Peter is staying with his company. He hasn't been bold, but things are about to change because they're filled with the Holy Ghost. And we want to be filled with the Holy Ghost as much as God will give us in the year 2000. He is not going to give us the power that He gave them because they had a special work to do and He equipped them for it. But He can give us the Holy Ghost more than we've had. He says we're to ask for it. And Paul speaks about being strengthened with all might in the inner man. And how many here have been living the Christian life with all might in the inner man? He can give us more. Amen. And we're going to be praying for more. And I hope you are praying for more. And we want to trust the Lord for more. They began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Some maintain that uh, they were all speaking in, four, in different languages but they were all saying the same thing, and they tried to prove that from the word utterance. I don't believe that. I believe the utterance in verse 4 is simply the faculty of precise speech. God gave them utterance, the faculty of speech. Because if you look the word utterance up and run it through the rest of your Bible, it's speech. God gave them the ability to speak in other languages. And that's what we want to look at for a moment, because it says they began to speak with other tongues. I shouldn't even have to take the few minutes that I'm about to take to preach about tongues. But there's a reason. Because we've got a bunch of charismatics in this country for the last 100 years that think getting under the power of a demon and rattling your mouth and making a bunch of gibberish is speaking in tongues. 
Oh, you say, are they all under the power of a demon? Not all of them. If you listen to music loud enough, and you open yourself up enough, and you get in a big enough crowd where other people are doing it, you open yourself up to a state of psychosis where anyone can do it. Scientists have proven this over and over again. It is proof of nothing. That's why it's the least gift in all the church of Jesus Christ, speaking in tongues. Because all you have to do is get the music loud enough and stomp your feet long enough and open yourself up enough into a trance, and you'll start babbling away. That is not the gift of tongues, and it never was the gift of tongues. That's the proof and evidence of a madman. And the Apostle Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 14. You're crazy. They'll say you're a mad barbarian. Tongues. Well, it's this thing. There's the tongue of a sea described in the Bible. There's tongues of wood. There's tongues on wagons. But what's this tongue? And they all spake with tongues, other tongues. It's languages. Brethren, it's so simple. A tongue is a language. God came down the Tower of Babel and there confounded their languages. But then immediately it says, and after that, all the families of the earth were divided by their tongues. Because tongues are languages. And I don't want to chase this very far. There's a whole study done on this, and it was a seminar study called as the Charismatic Movement Christian, or something to that effect. And it deals with the speaking in tongues in great detail, and it will be in the outline that you'll have available. But they began to speak with other languages. The gift of speaking in tongues is the supernatural power of God to be able to speak precisely in another language you were never taught. If I just start to jabber up here, and I'm not going to do it because I'm not good at imitating some of those people. Some men are gifted to uh, have no shame, but I'm not going to do that. Some of you have turned on Channel 16 before, local channel, and seen them in meetings just gibbering away like a bunch of squirrels in a cage. That isn't the, that isn't the blessing of God. Right. That's not the gift of the Holy Ghost. The, how would you recognize the power of God there? Where's the miracle? But now what if a dumb fisherman that couldn't even speak his own language, well, couldn't even speak his own language well, all of a sudden began preaching to you the wonderful works of God in Russian, and it was perfect Russian, and you were Russian, and you recognized every every bit of that language, every syllable, every bit of pronunciation, and you heard this glorious message coming at you strong in your own language, and you knew that man couldn't even speak his own. That is a miracle. That is a sign gift. That's a sign and a wonder. And brethren, we've got 120 people doing that. That is powerful. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, when 120 people start speaking in different languages and dialects from around the world perfectly, it gets people's attention. And that's the whole purpose of the sign gifts. Jesus told his apostles, you're going to be my witnesses, but I'm going to give you power to get their attention. You're going to be able to speak in other tongues, Mark 16, 
you're going to be able to heal the sick, raise the dead, drink poison and it not hurt you. How many times do you think the Jews tried to poison Paul? You say you're speculating because it's not in the book of Acts. You're right. I'm speculating from the book of Mark. And that's Mark 16. If God gave them that ability, then I assume that they used it. But I'll speculate safely from the book of Mark that the apostles were poisoned at some time and they drank it. And when those Pharisees or Jews that would have got there, got them to sit down for a meal, waited for them to drop down dead, and they didn't, they just started preaching. Amen. That's the power of the Holy Ghost. And they would take up serpents. Remember, a serpent latched onto the hand of Paul coming out of a fire when he put a stick on the fire. And the people there thought, ah, that's the vengeance of God. This man's a murderer. And God has sent this snake to kill him. Well, Paul shakes the thing off and keeps on eating. And in about 30 seconds, they start worshiping him as a god. Because the snake hadn't killed him and they knew it was a poisonous, venomous asp. That's the power of the miracles. And so when you start speaking fluently and perfectly in other languages, that was a miracle. There's no miracle in gibberish. Brethren, there's so much to say. I don't want to chase the tongues thing this morning. There's so much to say. It's all in the outline. Tongues were never... Where do they speak in tongues today? In their great big gatherings and revivals and churches. But tongues were never made to be spoken in church. Tongues were made to be spoken out there with unbelievers to get their attention. Then they'd hear the gospel. Tongues were not ever given to the church to give somebody a thrill ride because they're out of control vocally. Tongues weren't given for that purpose. They were given to get the attention of people so that they could then be taught. And Paul said, if there wasn't an interpreter right there with another gift, that is the gift to interpret a language that they didn't know, shut up. He never let a woman speak in tongues in an assembly, 1 Corinthians 14. He never let more than three speak, and they could only speak one at a time. And all those rules are clearly laid down in 1 Corinthians 14, all of which are usually broken in charismatic revivals, because they're not operating by the Spirit of God. You say you're running the risk of blaspheming the Holy Ghost. Listen, when I've got the Holy Spirit's manual right here, I'm not running any risk at all. They're the one running the risk, and you're the one running the risk for wanting to defend them. This is the Holy Spirit's manual. The apostles spoke in tongues, and it was other languages. Let's read about it. There were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. Isn't that something? I believe that. I don't care if he had the Cherokee nation represented there or not. Every nation under heaven, I believe it. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Every nation is there with every language and they're hearing these apostles, most of whom were Galileans, the dumbest of the Jews. You say, how do you know that? Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? How did how was Peter discovered when he was standing around that fire while Jesus was on trial? Peter was Peter was standing there warming himself at a fire. Jesus is over here on trial, and someone says, Hey, you sound like you're with Jesus because your speech is giving you away. Well, why was his because he was a redneck Galilean? 
Nobody should be offended with me saying that. We got rednecks here. He was a redneck Galilee, and his speech gave himself away. In a second of time, they recognized that. Now, you're going to see the word Galilean pop back up here in just a second. I'm just getting ahead of myself because I want you to be thinking about it. But this was noised abroad. They spread the word. You would not believe what's going on down the street. And they were all amazed, verse 7 tells us, and marveled. And that's what a sign of wonder is supposed to do. Get you amazed so that you'd pay attention. Saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? They couldn't even... They couldn't even pronounce Hebrew correctly. There's a whole lot of writings that have been done in the Galileans' form of speech, but they couldn't even speak Hebrew correctly. And I'm going to show, I'm going to prove it to you without going to any outside source, because in the list of 15 languages that are then given for you to get an idea, notice what it says in the middle of verse nine, and in Judea, there were men of Judea who were shocked that a Galilean could speak their language. Now, wait a minute. I thought Judea was part of Israel. It was. But a Galilean couldn't say it. So the Judeans were just as surprised as those from Yugoslavia. You say, was anyone there from Yugoslavia? Well, of course they were. It says every nation under heaven, the only nations that God dealt with at this time were the nations of the Mediterranean area of the world, the the Roman world. Let's read a few of them. How, verse 8 says, And how hear we every man in our own tongue? That is, how hear we every man speak our own language wherein we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the dwellers in Mesopotamia and in Judea and Cappadocia, in Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, in Egypt and in the parts of Libya about Cyrene and strangers of Rome, Jews and proselytes, Cretes and Arabians, we do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. They heard and they understood something. It wasn't noise, it was the wonderful works of God. Don't ever get confused about the gift of tongues. It was speaking other languages. Someone will say, well, 1 Corinthians 13 says that what if I spoke with the tongues of men and of angels? That is Pauline hyperbole. What is hyperbole? The exaggeration of a point to make a point. It makes a very strong point. When I say I could eat a horse, am I exaggerating? It'd be hard for me to get two quarter pounders of horse meat down. It's a hyperbole. It's a form of English speech. It's exaggeration to make a point. Paul said in the same place, what if I had all knowledge and understood all mysteries? Well, he's exaggerating the point. There isn't a tongue of angels. If there is, that's between God and and the angels. Every time I read an angel speaking, the men that were there understood it perfectly well. I don't think angels are limited like you and me. They weren't at the Tower of Babel. Don't you go let somebody go to 1 Corinthians 13 and pull out the tongues of angels after they've just babbled like an insane person in an insane asylum and tell you they were speaking the language of angels. That wasn't the gift of tongues. Right. Where's their interpreter? What'd they tell you? What's their understanding? What doctrinal lesson did you just give? 
You say you sound upset about the charismatics. I'm upset about the heresy that destroys the word of God. I wish those people wanted to hear Acts 2 taught properly. I don't care who taught them. Fifteen different language groups are mentioned there in verses 9 through 11. And they were all amazed and were in doubt. This is verse 12. Saying one to another, what meaneth this? That's That's a good answer. To see something like that, that's a good question. To see an event like that taking place, to ask, what is going on? What is this? But look what others said. Verse 13, others mocking said, these men are full of new wine. Accusing them of being drunk. I want to tell you something. When a man gets drunk, his ability of speech declines. It doesn't get better. When an Englishman gets drunk, he doesn't start speaking fluent Spanish. He can't even speak fluent English. You can ask any policeman that works in Greenville County. All they have to do is give him a few little, ask him a couple little questions and see how he responds in his own native tongue to know that he's drunk. What a joke. That shows you how hard the hearts of some men are. They mock the word of God and they mock this miracle. They mock this incredible event that should have caused them to say, what meaneth this? But instead they accuse them of being drunk. But Peter, who? Whom? Peter. Amen. You mean the one that denied Jesus? Amen. You mean the one that was afraid of a little crowd around a fire? That Peter? Uh-huh. That same Peter. Is he talking to his own people now? Is he confronting some hecklers? Are there some hecklers there accusing them of being drunk? But Peter stands up. This is the power of the Holy Ghost. If any of you say within yourselves, I'm weak. I'm a weak man. I'm a weak person. I've got weak character. I'm just a woman. I want to tell you something. God the Holy Ghost can make you mighty. Amen. And it is God Himself. The Holy Ghost is not the force. The Holy Ghost is God Himself will dwell within you and give you the strength for what you want to do if it's His will. Look at the change that came over a man called Peter. After he denied Jesus, he went and hid himself for fear of the Jews. But he's not afraid now, and it's the same people. And they're heckling him. But Peter, standing up with the eleven... The 12 of those apostles stood up. There's a huge crowd gathered there because they want to find out what's going on. He lifted up his voice. He wasn't afraid. He wasn't speaking in some mealy-mouthed, milk-toast fashion. He lifted up his voice. He spoke out boldly and loudly. This book is masculine, and the men that God chose were masculine. These little effeminate, spectacled, pot-bellied men that are called God's ministers today that speak like effeminate women are not called of God because God's ministers don't talk that way. You say, but what about the Apostle John? He was the Apostle of love. Yes, let's talk about the Apostle John. When Jesus met him, what did he rename him? A son of thunder. Enough said. I won't even get to what he wanted to do to the Samaritans. Son of thunder. That is not a still small voice. He lifted up his voice, 
and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. Listen to me. I'm going to tell you something. These are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. Now that's great reasoning. He immediately cuts them off in the flesh. He doesn't even, not, he's going to reason spiritually in just a second. But he cuts them off in the flesh. We couldn't be drunk. It's nine o'clock in the morning. Men don't get drunk that early in the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And brethren, here we have a prophecy from Joel chapter 2, and he's going to quote it, and he says, this event that you're witnessing is the fulfillment of what Joel said in Joel 2. Let me read it. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Then he takes up again with this sermon, but let's go back and look at this prophecy of Joel. If you were to listen to Jimmy Swaggart once, I can guarantee you that he would quote Acts chapter 2 and verse 17. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh. He'll pull his tie down, he'll wipe his brow because he's worked up a sweat, and he'll say, in the last days, I will pour out of my spirit. Those are future tense verbs. Aren't they? Is verse 17 in the future tense. It shall come to pass, shall come, is future tense. I will pour, is future tense. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, is future tense. They'll see, shall see visions, future tense. Shall dream dreams, future tense. Verse 18, this is, this is one of Jimmy's favorites too. I will pour out in those days of my spirit. I think that's his favorite. Future tense. They shall prophesy, future tense. Verse 19, I will show wonders, future tense. Verse 20, the sun shall be turned into blood, future tense. Verse 21, it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call shall be saved, all future. So Peter, Peter preached these words to the crowd. And it's all in the future tense. Does that mean it's for us? Does that mean it's for someone beyond us? Does that mean it's for someone in the 1800s? Verse 16, Peter said, This is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. Peter said, What you are looking at right now, this incredible pouring out of God's Spirit on these 120 so that they are able to supernaturally speak in foreign languages they have never heard nor learned, 
is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy. And then in his sermon, he quotes Joel. And when you quote someone, you ought to use the words they used. So he uses Joel's words, which were in the future tense when Joel wrote them. Is that deep? Or is that simple? If we would read the word of God and believe it. What do you start with? Peter said, this is that. So then when we see all these future tense words, we just got to remember, that's right. Peter is quoting a man who, who wrote them down 500 years before Christ. That's why it's in the future tense. Joel was saying, God will pour out. They shall prophesy. To Joel, it was way out in the future. It was 500 years away. To Peter, it was right now. And Peter said, this is. And brethren, is is not a future tense verb. It's a present tense. This is that. You say, but I can't explain all those little phrases. All you need to do is explain verse 16. I'll explain the rest of the phrases. This is that. And you hang on verse 16. Don't you let anyone tell you that verses 17 through 21 are for us or for the future or for the 18th century. They were for 33 A.D. And they were fulfilled. And the years immediately following in connection with that pouring out of the Holy Ghost. You know, we could look through the book of Acts and we're going to see it as we proceed through it that men and women did prophesy. There was a man named Philip who had four daughters that did prophesy, so there were handmaidens that prophesied by the power of the Holy Ghost. They had dreams. Paul would have dreams. A man of Macedonia would say, come over and help us. They'd have visions. And Paul would know the Lord's will by visions, by dreams, and by the gift of prophesying which filled the church at that time. They didn't have a New Testament. They would assemble like this and there's no Bible. Just the Old Testament. So there were men with gifts of prophecy. A man could stand up and teach the congregation for five minutes, and all of a sudden he would just sit down. He hadn't studied, he hadn't prepared, he had no notes. God just gave him the word of prophecy, and he preached for five minutes, and he sat down. And another man would pop up somewhere else in the assembly and take right off where that man had left off. Take right up where that man had left off. They had partial gifts of knowledge, partial gifts of prophecy. And that's what a service was like. And that's why Paul was so upset these Corinthians were wanting to get together and babble in foreign languages, which didn't benefit anyone. He said, I'd rather speak five words with my understanding. Jesus Christ is God's son. Paul would rather say that than have somebody speak in tongues for 10,000 words. That's his comparison in 1 Corinthians 14. Because he wanted those people that had gifts to edify the body to get up and say something. This all happened. But this was the beginning of it with the speaking in tongues by the 120 right there on the day of Pentecost. And it flows right through the rest of this 40-year period that we call the time of Reformation. We believe in a Reformation. But the Reformation with Martin Luther and the others that just took the Catholic Church, made a few minor modifications, and renamed it the Lutheran Church, that doesn't impress us. We're impressed with Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 10 that a man named the Apostle Paul would follow a man named Jesus Christ who followed a man named John the Baptist and they altered the, the system under Moses completely and renovated it so that we could throw away the system of Moses 
and have a kingdom of God. That's the Reformation. And it's called that in Hebrews 9 and verse 10. And these apostles helped accomplish that. Paul just happened to be the most industrious of them all. That ability to stand up and preach spontaneously, perfectly, without error, by the Holy Ghost, went away. Because it was no longer needed when we had the New Testament. As soon as that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Those gifts disappeared because we have what is called the more sure word of prophecy. Second Peter chapter 1 says this book is more sure than you hearing God's voice from heaven. Because you could always be mistaken about God's voice from heaven. We have it in print. Even carnal natural men know that a contract in print is better than one done verbally. Things tend to get confused a few days, weeks, months, or years later when things are done verbally. You might forget exactly what God said to you, so he wrote it down. You say, that you're simplifying it. No, I'm not. That's exactly why it's better. God wrote it down. And it's more sure. You might be pretty sure while you're standing there with Peter, James, and John, and Jesus Christ, but once you got down and over the shock of what happened to you, hearing God's voice from heaven, you might get a little confused. So we have it written down for us. So those gifts, those gifts lasted for a period of 40 years. That was prophesied they would last 40 years in order to confirm the apostles in their ministries and to teach the New Testament church before there was a completed Bible. But then an event took place at the end of those 40 years to put an end to it. You know, miracles went away. Charismatics seemed to forget that. The Apostle Paul began his ministry in a blaze of glory. The Apostle Paul was so powerful that handkerchiefs were mailed out from him, and if someone got a hold of a handkerchief, he'd be healed of whatever sickness he had. But when I get to the end of Paul's life, over in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he's writing Timothy saying, I recommend you use a little wine for your stomach's sake and your oft infirmities. Now, if Timothy was Paul's favorite minister, which he was, his most faithful man, which he was, don't you think the Apostle Paul would have mailed him a hanky? I mean, that was just the cruelest thing in the world to say, I'm going to leave you with your oft infirmities. Try a little wine, but I can't help you. When Paul could mail hankies out, his hanky power was gone. You say, how do you know that? Because about a few verses later it says, Trophimus, have I left at Ephesus sick? Well, why'd you leave him there, Paul? Because I couldn't heal him. But you know, we got faith healers today that think that the gifts is still around 2,000 years later. Paul even lost it. Because Paul's ministry had already been fully confirmed. Fully confirmed. He had witnesses over the whole known world that when Paul... Paul could perform miracles, and what he spoke was true. Amen. Amen. He didn't need to do any more. Well, let's come down to verses 19 and 20. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. There's a couple of ways we can look at this. And this is how you should look at this passage. First of all, verse 16 tells you that this is that. This five-verse paragraph that's in here from Joel 
began its fulfillment right there. But there was a great notable day of the Lord coming. And Peter's going to still talk about that day in the future tense before he ever finishes this sermon. It's verse 40, if you need to know where it is. So we're talking about a section of time that was limited by that generation because that's what Peter preaches in verse 40. The second thing is it says that great and notable day of the Lord in verse 20. Peter says this is the fulfillment now. Then he says there is a great and notable day of the Lord coming. Now Malachi 3, Malachi 4, Matthew 3, Matthew 10, Matthew 16, Matthew 23, Matthew 24, and then we got to go into the other Gospels, I know, describe a great notable day coming, and it would be the destruction of Jerusalem by the Lord Jesus Christ, where he would destroy his enemies. We read the prophecy of it in Psalm 110 this morning earlier. Rule thou out of Zion. He would destroy his enemies. And those men that crucified Jesus Christ were destroyed in a great and notable day. You say, is it really called something like that? Look at the last chapter of the Old Testament. Look at the last chapter of the Old Testament. And let's see. This is something that is not understood today. We are not smarter than others. God has been more merciful to us than others. You say, why? Because it seemed good in His sight. Amen. There is absolutely nothing in us to deserve any of His mercy, let alone the abundant mercy and of all the truth that He has shown us. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, the last two verses of your Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Who is Elijah in Malachi 4, 5? John the Baptist. Jesus Christ taught plainly in Matthew chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 17 that John the Baptist fulfilled this prophecy of Elijah the prophet. John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah and was just like Elijah. Plus, Jesus said twice, Matthew 11, Matthew 17, that John the Baptist was indeed Elijah. And the great notable day of the Lord must be something that John the Baptist was warning about. And sure enough, in Matthew 3, which I've already referred to this morning, he was warning about the destruction of that nation. Those Pharisees came out to his baptism, not to be baptized, but to make fun of him and to see what he was up to. And he said to them, Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? There was a great day of judgment coming, and it was the destruction of Jerusalem. And that is what is under consideration in Joel, and it's what's under consideration here. It is tied together with the baptism of the Holy Ghost and of fire. And sure enough, we read blood and fire and vapor of smoke, because that's what was coming. If you're ever with someone and you can't remember how you ought to interpret verses 19 and 20, just go back to verse 16 and remind them, this is that. And whether I can explain every phrase or not, this is that. Peter said it was fulfilled then. That great notable day of the Lord did occur 40 years later, but that whole section of time was wrapped together as the time of Reformation when the, when the Lord changed His form of worship from the Old Testament to what we do in the New Testament. I mean, we are different, brethren. 
the Old Testament, we'd be cutting animals up right now. And smoke would be going up. And you wouldn't have any hope. It was an ugly way of worshiping God. It was totally sensual. You heard it. You smelled it. You saw it. You tasted it. You touched it. You brought your own sheep in the back of your SUV. You'd have your sheep back there and you'd pull them out and he'd cut their throats and let them bleed and offer them as a sacrifice. That was under Moses' system. And now look at us here. Worshiping with a Bible. The Lord Jesus Christ. A lamb that's put away all those sacrifices. We're blessed abundantly and that transformation took place over 40 years. It's called the time of reformation. I know I'm repeating myself. These five verses here are that time of reformation ending with, with that great notable day of the Lord in which he would judge Israel. Wonders in heaven above. There were wonders in heaven above. All you have to do is read the historian Josephus. There were signs in the earth beneath. He has signs in the earth beneath. If you want to see a fulfillment that way. Blood. Was there blood shed in the city of Jerusalem? The streets ran with it. Ran with it like streams. Was there fire? They burned up the city. Was there vapor of smoke? The land of Israel was covered with the, paw, the, the smoke from the destruction of that city. Was the sun turned into darkness? Yes. The same way it was turned into darkness about ten times in the Old Testament. That is a figurative way for saying that there has been a great upheaval politically. The nation of Israel was put out of... They had their lights put out. Mm -hmm. And how do you say that? Figuratively, as a prophet, the sun shall be turned into darkness. I could show you numerous examples, but they're in the outline. I don't want to spend time that you should remember from past preaching, and you should be able to look up yourself. But Isaiah 13 is the classic that you always want to go to, Because in Isaiah 13, we are told that it is about the destruction of Babylon, and we're told who did it? The Medes and the Persians, by name. By name, brethren. And that occurred in 452 B.C. But back when Isaiah wrote, which was about 800 B.C., Isaiah said that it was the great and notable day of the Lord, and the sun would be turned into darkness, the stars would fall from heaven. And Isaiah 13 is the one you want back there in your memory bank to go and show someone that prophets spoke in figurative ways. And this is figurative here in verse 20. But I do know one thing. It was fulfilled shortly after the day of Pentecost because Peter said it was. I am not looking for that as the Schofield Reference Bible would direct me at something in the future 2,000 years later. There was a great notable day of the Lord coming immediately, a few years And Peter is still preaching about it when he gets to the end of this sermon. Hopefully, you're all convinced. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That is not talking about hell, fire, and that is not talking about the great day of judgment. It's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Whoever believed on Jesus would have heeded Jesus' warning and been saved from that generation. Isn't that the salvation that Peter mentions in verse 40? Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Didn't Jesus say in Matthew 24, when you see the armies coming, flee from Jerusalem to the mountains of Judea. And he that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. You say, that's so practical. Yeah, isn't that kind? 
Wasn't that kind of the Apostle Peter to warn that nation that God was going to pour out upon them tribulation the likes of which the world had never seen? I say that's a glorious message. You say, does he work in there the salvation from sin? Absolutely he does. Jesus Christ was made Lord and Savior. But he gets it all in there. He warns these people of what's coming on them. We take up again in verse 22 after teaching that prophecy. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Now he's just warned them about a great notable day of the Lord coming. He doesn't elaborate on it right now. But he says what you're witnessing is the fulfillment of that prophecy. And if these were devout men, it wouldn't have taken too much to realize that there must be a day of judgment coming also. Now he's going to tell them who's guilty. And this shows the boldness of Peter. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. No man wanted to claim Nazareth as his origin. Because can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That's That's the name that Peter chooses right here. Jesus of Nazareth, which happened to be his title over the cross also that Pilate put there. Jesus of Nazareth. A man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. You men of Israel, do you know what you've done? God sent Jesus Christ. He proved that he was from God by all of the signs, wonders, and miracles that he did. But you took him, and with wicked hands you crucified and and slew him. Now that is a bold man. To accuse a great crowd that outnumbers his little group significantly, like maybe ten to one or something, and accuse them of murdering the Lord Jesus Christ and having flown right in the face of God's plan and God's determinate counsel, and that they had actually been used by God to slay the Lord Jesus Christ. And he tells them that. But God has raised that man up from the dead because it was not possible that death could hold him. Verse 24. You know, predestination was even taught here by the Apostle Peter. Jesus Christ died by the determinant counsel and foreknowledge of God. The determinant counsel. Not just the counsel, the determinant counsel. When God's counsel decides something, it's determined. That means it's going to happen. God doesn't have anything going on in the universe that He's getting surprised with today. He's not surprised at my inability. He determined that with the gifts He gave me. He knows how good they are and He knows how weak they are. Nothing is surprising him today. Right. It's the determinate counsel of God. You know, there are people that say, but does God really predestinate evil? Yep. Well, why don't we, for the sake of the discussion for one minute, pick the most evil event that ever took place on this planet? And it wasn't the raping of some co-ed at Clemson. It was the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. An innocent man on trial when no witnesses could agree among themselves that he had ever done anything wrong when Pilate knew he was an innocent man. 
He had fed that nation, healed that nation, raised the dead, calmed storms at sea, and they still wanted to crucify him. He had never preached a lie and never took a dollar. Never passed an offering plate. And they crucified him. They just didn't put him in a gas chamber. They just didn't give him a little cyanide. They crucified him. The most evil event in the history of the world. Was, did it surprise the Lord? Was there even a single detail of it that surprised the Lord? Did he say that not a bone of his would be broken? Was a bone broken? No. Did they say that they would cast lots for his garments? Did they cast lots for his garments? Did it say that he would say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Did he say that? The determinant counsel and foreknowledge of God. Jesus Christ did not come into this world as a remedy. Jesus Christ came into this world as part of the determinant counsel of God to display his magnificent grace and power and wrath to the universe. It was by the determinant counsel of God. You say, but it also says foreknowledge. Yes, and I'll remind you that foreknowledge is following his determinant counsel. When God determined to create the Garden of Eden and put man in it and put one tree there and give him one commandment, did God foreknow what would happen if he did those things? Of course he did. Did God determine to go ahead and do those things? Yes, he did. Did that mean that Adam's eating of the fruit off the tree of the knowledge of good and evil also occur according to his determinant counsel? Yes, that's how it fits together. God knows with foreknowledge if I determine this set of events, then this is obviously going to result. If I determine that Jesus Christ will die, his spirit will leave his body, before the soldiers come around to take the bodies off the cross, they won't break his legs, they'll just stab him in the side. The determinate counsel of God was fulfilled down to the infinite detail of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We're going to end right there for this morning at verse 24. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. And brethren, I preach to you this morning, Jesus of Nazareth. And I hope you love him. And I don't mind that name of his because I know that Jesus of Nazareth is now King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You saw it in Psalm 110. Peter's going to preach it. Peter's not done yet. Peter's going to put the Lord Jesus Christ as high as he can get him. And those men are going to say when they see Jesus Christ high, men and brethren, what shall we do? And do you know what our response ought to be this morning? The very same. What shall we do? I'll tell you what you can do. You can pray more. You can pray for the Holy Ghost to have powerful lives like these men and women. We can live righteously. We can train our children, love our spouses, love the brethren in this assembly, assemble whenever we can, be of one mind, get rid of our differences. All the things that Jesus of Nazareth taught us is what we ought to do because he is king and he's coming again. And brethren, as I prayed earlier this morning, which has gripped me this day, I, I trust by His blessing, we are twice created. Amen. He created us once by His determinate counsel, and He has made us a new creation by His determinate counsel. Right. Jesus has bought us again. He put us in a perfect world the first time we sinned against Him. And in spite of that, He has bought us again. And you know what? We have sinned in spite of that. 
And he still is merciful and forgives us those sins. Jesus Christ is king. Do you know what the simplest summary of the gospel is? What I just said to you. Jesus is king. And we ought to humble ourselves before him and say, men and brethren, what shall we do? You've been baptized. You've repented from your sins when you were baptized. But brethren, every day we need to repent from our sins and worship him and live a pure and holy life for him here in this world as the citizens of his kingdom. He has shown us so much. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.